Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Sharks. Wouldn't it be nice to know who is behind the door before you let me in? With my product, you can. Rejection. It's the worst. Every person I speak to for this podcast or for the pieces I write for the Sunday Times, seems to have a story, or several. But usually it occurs in a drab conference room somewhere or over a terse, dispiriting phone call. This week's guest on Danny in the Valley is Jamie Simonoff, and he went one better. He went on TV as a bright-eyed entrepreneur on the program Shark Tank, hoping to convince one of the five investors, or sharks, to invest in his little startup that had designed a new video doorbell. It did not go well. It's really not an internet play, it's a consumer device. I just don't think it's for me. I just don't see that progression. And for that reason, I'm out. You've probably never heard of Doorbot, as it was called then. But there's a decent chance you've heard of what the company is now called, Ring. Today, the company that the sharks left on the scrap heap is worth half a billion dollars and has become something of a phenomenon. In Jamie's journey from being days away from bankruptcy to luring in the likes of Sir Richard Branson, amongst many other investors, who have come on to bankroll the company's meteoric rise since, is both illuminating and pretty entertaining. I think you really enjoy it. So here's Jamie. Well, it's funny. It actually took very little time to get the volume out there. If you look on like a time scale, it took a very long time to get the first couple out there. So... I started playing with this concept in 2011, basically bounced off of bankruptcy with it for the first uh, little over three years. And it wasn't until the end of 2014 that we launched kind of Ring, the real product brand and everything else. 15 was a big year for us. 16 was a massive year for us. 17 so far has been even bigger. So it's really like in the last like 18 months that we've done most of the business. So I think if we could use it, an event and then we can talk about before and after so shark tank for those not in america you go on there and there's what five judges investors, sharks, yeah, investors and yeah. they decide whether your idea is investable or not that was november of 2013 we were totally out of money and uh so we ended up getting on the show we go on there and uh you know i was trying to raise seven hundred thousand dollars for ten uh, percent of the company you were saying the companies were seven million then they said no it went on the air and a lot of people saw it and bought the product. Were any rings out in the world at that point? At the time we were called Doorbot, which was a really terrible name. That, um, yeah, that that's doesn't kind of roll off the tongue. No, no, it doesn't. And uh, it, was, it was a big, <laughs> ugly looking thing. I was in my garage building it. You know, I'd never built a product before, so I was really struggling to build it. For some reason, they just couldn't see how Doorbot could be worth anything. In fact, Mark Cuban had this like funny quote saying, you know, are you going to do okay? Yeah, you'll do okay. Like, I love the product, but like, I need to invest in something that can be worth more than say $50 million. And that couldn't happen here. I can tell you that we're, uh, we're healthy, healthily above that valuation today. Well, if you 
believe the press, but I of course do not. I don't read anything. I believe anything I read. You guys are worth like 460 million? Last reported round. So when you walk off the stage, are you like crestfallen? For some reason, I thought like a Mark Cuban, you know, was going to invest. I was, I was really like kind of positive that like something good was going to, I, I thought we were going to get a, a deal out of it. I mean, I just, I couldn't believe that we didn't get the money. So were you selling and making doorbots at that point? We were pre-selling doorbots, but we hadn't actually shipped it. We started so there shipping, was zero in the world? Zero in the world. We aired November of 13 and we started shipping doorbots December of 13. So we basically started shipping them right after we aired, which was like perfect timing because then people could actually buy it who had just seen it on TV. It's funny. Like we thought it was going to be like this huge, like boom, and then zero. Like we thought it was just going to be a million dollars of sales that night and you wake up the next morning and now it's back to normal. And we got like a hundred and something thousand of sales, which was like good, but wow, like that wasn't what we were hoping for. And I just thought it was going to then go to like back to, you know, $5,000 a day or whatever we were at. The next day it was like another hundred thousand. We were like, huh. Then there was like this halo effect of then people, I think telling someone about it. And I mean, it was definitely more than 4 million of sales came from Shark Tank, which gave us a huge amount of margin, you know, because we were actually making money on it because we didn't spend anything on these, like acquire these customers. So we ended up investing that. That's what became Ring, like that money. It was the first investor capital that we used to build the company was that money from Shark Tank. So what was the company before that? In terms of size or? Yeah. I mean, if you had a product that wasn't anywhere and you had like eight people. When I filmed Shark Tank, I was still in my garage. So you were eight guys working out of a garage? Yes. And now you have what, a thousand people here? Well, about 1,200. I'm told that you guys are expecting, what, like 300 million in sales this year or something like that? You, you, you're good at finding out uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, how long we had that coffee station for in the office before we started doing this. Um, that's not a terrible guess, but maybe a little low. A little low. Why do you think this is working? I think it's working. We deliver a solution to people. We're not a technology company. We're not a... um, It looks like a technology company. We are very focused on... We have a mission to reduce crime in neighborhoods. And our job is to go out there and to deliver a solution to our neighbors to help them make their neighborhoods safer. That comes through technology. But we're not a technology-first company. And I think why we've done well is the smart home and all this stuff... While it's great on paper and it gets written about and it's like the press can make cool things about it, I actually don't think it's like that interesting. What people really want is a great solution for their home and for their lives to make it better. And I I do think that's what we deliver. So it turns out that most crime in neighborhoods happens when people aren't there. So by being able to deliver presence, so being able to see, speak, and, and hear who's there, so being able to really interact with someone at your door no matter where you are, you're actually able to reduce crime in your neighborhood. We now have four different doorbells. We have four different cameras. So like we have the ring of security around your door, the ring of security around your home. We do a lot of data stuff on it to like share it. So it's become a lot more than just the doorbell. And so now basically if somebody walks up on your doorstep, it shows up on your phone. Yeah, you get an alert says like there's motion detection at my your front door. And if you're away and it's a weird time of day, you'll maybe check it. We call it always home. So it's like that connection of sort of you being always home. And we've definitely proven through lots of studies, including one with the Los Angeles Police Department, where we actually reduce crime in a neighborhood by putting 10% of the homes of the ring. We reduce crime by 55% in the neighborhood. Well, how though? Because I mean, it's not so like it's, you see from afar, oh, here's a, you can see like an alarm bell and people are like, okay, I'm going to 
skip that house. Yeah, and that's the best thing is it's not about the technology. It's about the interaction even with the criminal. The person's going to come up to the house and they're going to look around and they're maybe going to knock on the door. Maybe they're going to hit the doorbell. Maybe they're just going to look around. While that's happening, you come across on your phone and you say, uh, how can I help you? And the person Even says, if you're five time zones away. Yeah, I mean, you can be example. anywhere yeah. as long as you have internet. And so the person says, uh, I'm doing tree trimming estimates. Do you want... And you're like, no, thank you. I'm all good. What was interesting, why we were able to reduce crime by so much. When you answer that door, you're not only protecting your house from being robbed because they don't know if you're there or not. You're protecting all the houses around you. What we found is that burglars, they break into houses in empty areas not just empty homes themselves. So like an individually empty home next to homes that have presence in them, have people in them, that's kind of safe. It actually does really change the dynamics of crime uh, in the neighborhood. And you created this thing yourself. I did. I was working in the garage building a thing called Snap Garden, which was a modular gardening system. It never worked, by the way, so don't worry. It's not going to come out. And while I'm in the garage doing this, my garage is like way in the back. My house is in the front and I couldn't hear the doorbell. I tried to get one of those little wireless doorbells. It didn't reach. And so I looked online for a Wi-Fi doorbell because it just seemed like something that someone would produce and there was nothing there. And so I built one. My title here is chief inventor. I like to think of myself as an inventor, not an entrepreneur. And I think the difference between entrepreneur and inventor is entrepreneur is their motivation or job is to build a company. An inventor's job is to solve a problem. And so I like to think that I'm definitely more of, my brain is more around solving problems than it is actually of trying to make money out of it or build a company around it. It turns out if you want to solve problems at scale, you need to have a company. So it's kind of forced me to do a little bit of that. But if the reality is I really don't do much management. So do you need to kind of have, bring in adult supervision now that you're 1,200 people and a very big company? What's been interesting is, and, and it's kind of like, a, it's funny because a lot of people now ask me about it and even are kind of almost like studying it because we have grown very large and have done some big things that like at a very efficient scale, I'd say. By not being strong on management and not pretending that I can actually run the company, I would just hire people and if they were strong, they would kind of build their own little area and almost be their own CEO. So I say we have like 50 CEOs in the company and they all kind of run their own group with the guidelines of the mission still to reduce crime in communities or neighborhoods. You know kind of what your area is, like you are doing marketing for stores, but inside of that you are like completely free to do whatever you want. And so it's almost like Darwinism where the people that are able to manage themselves and build teams do really well. And the people that don't get fired or just leave, there is some control, but it's also on the other side. It's not like management meetings and KPIs, which are telling you what to do and how fast to grow. It's like people here have a lot of autonomy to just go and do what they think is right. Are you guys international now? We are. We are. So we are in Europe. Um, we've been in the UK now for a couple of years and growing that a little bit of South America, a little bit of Middle East Africa, Australia. So we're kind of, you know, just kind of inch by inch kind of getting up there. It's, it's hard for smaller companies. And even you have to have a really strong focus when you're small. You know, when you get to the scale of an Amazon or a Google, you can do all sorts of stuff and have you know, offices and infrastructure everywhere. But when you're a smaller company, you still have to really keep focus. And so we're going to kind of grow like each, you know, kind of a country by country approach. There's a box here. Is your, is your email on that box? My email's on every single box. Your personal email. My personal email is on every box. 
I love getting unfiltered information, good or bad. In fact, I like getting bad unfiltered information better than good because good is nice, but great. Like you're doing a good job. Thank you. What's better to see is like, where are we failing and how do I fix that? It also, some people say hundred percent customer satisfaction. When you have your email in the box, you mean 100% customer satisfaction because literally if one customer doesn't like you, they're going to tell you. And do you respond? 100%. And you said the the incoming from the UK customers is, how, how would I say this? Lively. Lively. They are it's passionate <laughs> customers in the UK. <laughs> you know, it's fun running a global company that's in the consumer space where people talk to you. I mean, some days, yeah, some days I kind of wish my email wasn't on there because I'm tired and I just want to like go crawl up in a ball somewhere. But, you know, it is fun. And I was saying, you know, like the UK customers just seem a little bit more passionate in their first email typically. They're passionate about their doorbells. I think they're just, they're, it's, you know, it's, it's funny. It's a language thing. I think people in the UK just talk to me, like from my perspective, like in a nastier way, like their words are much stronger and they're much like, they're very quick to almost like put a kill shot through on the first email, no matter what the problem is, like no matter what the severity of the problem is, dear sir, shoot first and then like hope you kill, I guess. The funny thing is when I write back and say like, you know, oh my God, I'm sorry that you had this you know, problem, whether it's big or small, we'll stand behind it. We'll help you like whatever they're almost as upset and angry and mean as they are in the first one. They're almost nicer than, than anyone else. Like, it's almost like they're the two extremes. So then they're like, Oh, well, if you're ever in, you know, Duxenberry, you know, come by and have a tea, please, you know, at my house and you can stay there. You know, it's like, okay, thanks. But like you told me in the first email that like literally you'd like, you'd kill me and like, you know, everyone else around me. I mean, like, you know, it's like, so it is, it is kind of funny, but we do find that that like the more passion someone has, Typically, those are just passionate people. And so if you take care of them, people, I think, are not used to having someone at a company actually care. And when they see that, I think they almost become equally as passionate on the other side. And again, part of Ring Success has been we call our customers neighbors, is having our neighbors feel that and spread that for us because we can't be everywhere. And so having people in the neighborhood that are not only saying, is this a good product, as we talked about, I try not to be a tech company. But it's something that you want to be part of. Like you want a ring, not just a product, but you want to be like part of that neighborhood. I did do some reading before I came here that you look to people like James Dyson for kind of inspiration. What about him? I don't know him. So it's like yeah. I, I, I want to separate the reality of who he is as a person because I actually don't know him. But from what I've been able to see, he seems like a great person. I love that he took this brand around something like a vacuum cleaner before him was just such a like non-event, non-interesting, non-inventive. I mean, like pretty much like non-everything product. Yeah, now they look like spaceships. Yeah, can kind of... and he did that. But even his brand though, when you walk into a store, Dyson is on something. When it's, when it's on the box, you know whatever's in that box is better than the thing on the right and the thing on the left. He has built a brand that says, I will always have a better product than everyone else. Like it's, it's just going to be that much better. Like the hairdryer, my it- wife has it. And like, I want to now like quaff my hair with a hairdryer because <laughs> like you should get one and you just, have no hair because yeah. it's that good. Like right. just like drying just dry, your scalp, dry my scalp. Yeah, like, okay. But, but so I love like that, like to me, what I want ring to do of that is not to copy James Dyson and say like, it's the most inventive. 
we want to be inventive, but I want it to be that someone sees Ring and they say, I know whatever's in that box is going to make my neighborhood safer. It's going to make my home safer. It's going to be good for my family. Like, that's what that company cares about, and that's what that brand stands for. And these are what, a couple hundred bucks, the, the Ring? Uh, they range from like 149 to 249 on the main stuff. We have a 499 one, but like most of it is, yeah, like 149 to 249. So you're not making all these hundreds of millions just by selling these. It's a subscription, right? That the so we have, yeah. If you, if you, it's an optional subscription that if you, uh, the recordings and then we're adding some other stuff to it, but it's $3 a month or $30 a year. So it's, and what is that? Basically like 60 days of cloud recording. So you like it's 60 days back. You can go and see and scan. Oh, so you have a running two-month history of people coming in from your house. Yeah, cloud storage, yeah. What do you do with that data? I mean, do you use it for other stuff? I mean, are there any privacy concerns around having kind of... Because I can see... I don't know if you've ever been dragged into a divorce proceeding or (laughs) anything like that. You know, some of this information could be quite sensitive and personal. So it's their... I mean, it's the customer's information. So if, if the customer needs to, you know, access it or if there's, you know something like that. Where it's been so valuable though is in the neighborhoods in terms of like if someone's creeping around or has a story and they say that they're the you know the tree trimmer person and doing estimates and doesn't really seem like they are, then someone like sends it around on next door and says, "Hey, you know, has anyone seen this person?" and someone says, "Yeah, they came to my house, but they said they're a dog walker." And now you're like, "Oh, that's weird." The data has been great for that, and I think we've we've created a very good mechanism of allowing people to understand the privacy and the private public side of their data. So while we're a neighborhood company, your data is your data and it's private. A lot of times when something happens in a neighborhood, you then get the choice to make that data public that's going to help the neighborhood. And I've seen that you guys are around kind of, I mean, I see rings everywhere, not only installed, but like in stores and you're even on like the home shopping network yeah i just i just was got off a of qbc like uh two weeks ago i was on for 24 hours it's called the today's special value at tsv i sold sixty-six thousand units in 24 hours they pepper you in so are you in that you are th- live so there's like other stuff going on so they'll have like pashminas on for 30 minutes and, and then, then look at on. these diamond earrings the cubic zirconia diamond ink man that stuff sells really well and then i go on it shows the power of selling a solution and not a technology. It's not talking down to someone and telling them about the 1080p and the 5.0 gigahertz, whatever, and we're faster than the seven other people in the Dex. You know, I can make your home safer, your neighborhood safer, and here's how. You can answer your door no matter where you are, and you know that you've heard that people have been broken into when they haven't been home, and everyone can relate to that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I mean, you say you're not a tech company. I mean, it's obviously... It's, it's all a, tech. It's but. a tech product. <laughs> yeah. But you're not going to see too many tech companies who will make something and then jump on the Home Shopping Network or QVC and start hawking it. Correct, because I think the problem with tech companies is that they're tech companies. I think technology is something that's actually very exclusionary to most people. Tech itself is not something very interesting to people. When you want to part with your money, you don't part with your money for tech. You don't buy an iPhone because it's technology. You buy it because it has amazing games when you're bored. It allows you to talk to people wherever you are. That's why you buy the you know Apple phone or the Samsung, Android, whatever the hell it is. And I think that's the same thing that we try to be with Ring is you buy it because of what it does for you, not because of what it is. And if we just go back, how many companies have you started before this one? Six or seven. Honestly, probably like 10, but like six or seven that like had like some type of traction. Right. So did you have like a boatload of money before you started Ring? I mean, what was your kind of, I was like, what, I was what like, kind I was of like companies a, were you doing before? I mean, I did a company called PhoneTag that did voicemail to text that we ended up selling to uh, Nuance, but like for not that much. I mean, so outside of Silicon Valley, I would say I was a upper middle class person inside Silicon Valley. I'd say I probably was a poor person in terms right. of like, you I know, know. Like, I live in San Francisco. It's yeah. So I wasn't like, stuff. I mean, I didn't have hundreds so you, of like, right. I, yeah, I was, I wasn't hundreds of millions of dollars. I wasn't in my garage moving my luxury cars out every day so that I could like play in my garage. Like I was looking back, I probably didn't have enough money to be doing the exploratory business stuff I was doing. And so you did phone tag or any other companies? A company called unsubscribe.com. That sounds self-explanatory. <laughs> so it unsubscribed. Uh, it's in the gray mail space. It was the best product. One of the best products I've ever worked on or, or done. What's gray mail? Spam is like the, you know, like the, you know, that's like the completely illegal, just like spam mail, yeah. which has been basically fixed. Like, yeah, we don't see it anymore. It just doesn't even come in our boxes, but still over 50% of our emails unwanted. Unwanted email, typically commercial email is actually gray or it's, Stuff you would subscribe, unsubscribe from, but because it's easier to hit delete, you do that, which then does, like keeps. So we basically created all this stuff to like get the gray mail out, so that you only would get email you wanted. Great product, no one wanted to pay for it. Who were you trying to sell to? Well, originally trying to sell to consumers, like no one wanted to buy it there. We tried to do enterprise to say, listen, like fifty percent, like you have like ten thousand employees, and half of their email is this, which means like you know ten hours a week they're basically like doing this, which could be you know. And they're like, yeah, that's great. We don't care. So, <laughs> so did you just stop after a while? We ended up selling it for like what we had into it. So I'd raised a little bit of money. And so I ended up getting the money back for the investors. Was that like, I don't know, a couple... Million? It was like a million and a half dollars. To, I, total for everybody? Or is that yours? No, that was, no, that was, that was total. And right. I, I didn't make a dollar on it. I mean, I didn't make a single right. dollar on it. I was always, you know, it's funny because I mean, it's like now looking back, it's just like the scale of things. It's kind of funny, like a million and a half dollars. And like I worked six months to get them that money back. And I remember the investors being like, don't worry about it. Just like kill it and let's move on to the next thing. And I'm like, no, I'm getting your money back. Like I was so focused on like getting their money back, which again, in other words, selling it, 
finding a buyer. Sell, yeah, finding them. Yeah, exactly. And now you've raised here what two hundred million or something? Yeah, a little, little over two hundred. So it's just again the scale of things is just you yeah, know, it's like interesting. Yeah, like it's. And you, so no one wanted to invest in this pre-shark tank. No, even post. I mean, it, it took a true ventures was the one who really came in and saw through the crap to see what was like in the center of it. You know, like so were, John has done. John Callahan has done this oh, podcast. John and his firm are, are one of the best early stage investors, I think, because they most companies look really ugly when they're young and you can have really great things that look like crap when they're young. And John is just great at seeing like this is going to be good for the world. There's a mission there. There's a this there. And just really backing it to allow it to go all the way through that, like that adolescent phase that's so gross. And so I think he's just been great at finding those nuggets. And with us, I mean, we were, no one wanted us. I mean, it's like you read about all these rounds of like VCs trying to get into their money into these companies. Like I have them come up to me now and say, I can't believe I missed you. I'm like, you didn't miss me. You just wouldn't touch me. You know, like I would have taken anyone's money. I would have taken a loan shark's money at that point. Like I would have, I don't care who it was. Like he saw something in us. Uh, he and his team. I mean, they have an amazing uh, team and really backed us the whole way through. And, and we wouldn't be here without them. Wow. When was that? Early 2014. And that's, you're producing now in China? Yes. How's that? International business is always difficult. Are there a lot of suspicious looking doorbells that look a lot like Ring all over China now? We have about 100 competitors in this. I think we're probably 98% of the business. So, you know, like something like 2% of the business is split between like 100 copycats. So we're doing a pretty good job of owning our invention. You can't just knock off Ring because the physical hardware part of it is such a small piece of the actual business. And so I remember being at CES and the, you know, a guy came up, seemed like he was a person who would try to copy the device and he's taking pictures of it and he's looking at it. And I kind of walked over and I said, like, you interested? And he's like, yes, I want to, you know, I want to check it out for my house and whatever. And I'm like, really? Listen, you can just take it and take it apart if you want. Like, like here, take it. Because you can copy the chips and how it's put together and everything else. But that's 5% of the actual experience you get with Ring. Some products, literally like a bottle cap, like you can take it, take the dimensions and just build another one. How many people are actually subscribers? Because what um, do you get if you're not subscribing? I mean, if you don't subscribe, you still get like, I mean, like you get live view, so you can go in anytime and like see what's on the camera. You get the motion detection, you get the doorbell ding. So you get a pretty good experience still. It's just not recording. But in terms of for this category, is it, do you know how it ranks in terms of people actually paying every month? Yeah, I think we're like, I think we're becoming a contender. It's funny. I really don't, maybe it's part of being in Los Angeles. Like I don't really look at other people. Maybe, maybe it's part of being an inventor. Is like I, I really try to like go our own way, build what we think is the right business, and just keep doing that. And the chime, ding 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 yeah. ding 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 ding. Is that oh like the actual sound? Yeah. I mean that's funny because that's like heard like it's like millions of whatever. And was that a deliberate thing? Because so, is it is it a branding thing? Yes. I mean yes. I mean like we thought it'd be cool if this device and when it was doorbot like it would be cool if this device had its own sound that was like doorbell-ish but like our sound just i don't know just thought it'd be cool and um i think i remember like skype had their sounds and mm -hmm. tivo had their sounds and i was always like it's kind of cool when you have like a sound and so i had no idea how to make a sound at our preschool there was a guy who was in a band like one of the dads super cool guy and i'm like do you know how to make sound and he's like yeah i do it for commercials and 
you know, so he gave me this proposal that was like, he was the chime guy. He's the chime guy. So he gives me this proposal and it's like, if you ever become this, like, you know, you have to pay me like perpetual stuff on it. But like, it had to be like really big to do that. And I remember just being like, I didn't agree to it because not because I didn't want to pay him. I just thought it was not going to become that big. And I didn't want to deal with like the thought around it. So I just said, listen, I'll pay you like a couple grand, make me a chime sound. And so he made the chime sound. And now it's like, you know, I mean, it's a pretty well known. He must be bummed out. I gotta, I gotta look him. I, you know, we're not in the preschool anymore because we're older. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think he's probably a little bit. Like, I should probably give him like I don't know, like maybe send him a <laughs> send him a bottle of whiskey or something. <laughs> so you were doorbot, and then you changed to Ring. Yeah. Did you have to buy that website? Yeah. So I doorbot was just a bad name. No one wants a doorbot at their front door. No, like, it's, like, it's it's a, it's a name that a guy in a garage makes up. Which yeah, well, it sounds happened. like it makes me think of like a Terminator. Like there's like yeah. a laser sh- pointed at you, like which doorbot angry. Probably was like something I giggled about when I got came up with a name, thinking that was good. You know what I mean? Like that was like the frame of mind I was in. Like I was going from making Snap Garden, which actually I thought was a good name too. To doorbot, you know, I mean, it was like, it was like, and um, all of a sudden we realized this really actually is an important product. Uh, this could do something amazing for the world. It can reduce crime. It can deliver presence. And we started realizing all these amazing things about it. And we said, we need to redesign the whole thing, the product, the brand, the name, the whole thing. So we started to look for a name and I kept saying ring of security, ring of this, ring, 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 ring the doorbell. And one of our investors, actually he's local, he's over at Upfront Ventures, which if you know them. This guy, Hamet Watt, said, you keep saying ring. Why don't you just call it ring? And I was like, huh? Like, yeah, okay. I kind of like left the meeting like, yeah, okay. And then that night he emailed me and said, ring.com's available. Now, available is like a choice of words that's interesting. It was for sale. But then when he said that, I love four-letter domain names. Um, one of my like mentors or like people that I look up to is Josh Koppelman who had half.com. Right. And I always thought like, man, I, I just need a four letter domain name to be like Josh. And so, <laughs> so the things for sale, I negotiate with the guy, but it ended up being a million dollars, a million dollars. Yeah. And I had 170, $187,000 in the bank at the time for mortars. So how do you buy a million dollar domain name? It's actually eight. It was so the original deal was 800,000. And I ended up basically having to say, sorry, I can't pay the 800. I can do a million, but I can only give you $175,000 upfront. Right. And I'll give you the 825 in two years. So you had to end up bidding the wrong way, kind of bidding. <laughs> in essence. And he, and he was not happy because we had agreed to the 800. And I think he even said some things that I was, that like a UK customer would say to me in the first time they email me. <laughs> and, um, but he ended up agreeing to it. I drained the bank account for it. One of the best investments I've ever made. Why did you do that? Why did you put all of your money into a four-letter domain name? It's funny because I'm like, on one side, I had this belief it was going to become something amazing. This was part of it. On the other side, I was scared that we weren't going to be anything. So it was a very weird, like I was kind of like conflicted, but I really did feel like if we're going to go for this, we need to do it on a name that's just so strong. And Nest was out and Nest, four-letter domain name. And I'm like, I have to be on their level. Like I, we, we, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to say we are like that level of company, like we are that Apple nest, whatever, like we have to be part of that. And so part of that is having the domain. Um, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of investors said it was like, I mean, at the time we're like, you're, you just bankrupted the company. Like you're an idiot. <laughs> and looking back, I mean, it probably was one of the things that helped us establish ourselves because it was, it did deliver this impression 
that it was a, a strong company. It was ring.com was like a strong, whether you even realize it or not. Like better, you, better than doorbot for sure. Better than doorbot. But then not even realizing it, I think it delivers credibility. I think when, when you say to someone ring.com, when we were at meetings or whatever, it just, it felt powerful. What was ring.com before you had he, it? He just owned it. Yeah. Just owned it. He probably bought it for 50 bucks. I think he bought it for like the, yeah, like the $49 domain thing and whatever, just kept it and never sold it. It's crazy. Wow. It's like almost a that's better a, part of the am- story than yeah, this. Yeah, that's, like, that's an amazing like, business model. He was a doctor in like Minnesota. He just decided ring.com. Yeah, Someone's going to come and for this at some point. From what I had heard, I, I, at different times he had had different offers, some a lot more than mine, but at those times people thought it was worth a lot more. So he was always kind of on the high end. So even I had a, a friend who was a big domain buy and sell, like a person who bought and sells a lot of domain names. And when I was buying this, he said the, the domain is not worth more than a hundred thousand and it's probably worth more like 25 to 50,000. And I was like, okay, that's cool. He's like, how much are you paying? I'm like a million. And he's just like, <laughs> you know, idiot. <laughs> and now looking back, I mean, what's it worth to us? I mean, it probably was worth, you know, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 million. I don't know. Right. In valuation. I mean, the, 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 for sure it added some X factor onto our, you know, value as we grew as a company. Right. And had you invented stuff before, like complex electronics? Because I'm just no, thinking I mean, of uh, like you in a garage with like a bunch of I mean, stuff. I mean, uh, yeah. you put me in a garage for a year. With nothing a, happens. And nothing <laughs> happens. I die. I'll just be a corpse in there. You use a DoorDash to get Well, food unless I had there. a snap garden in there that I that could yeah, provide really, sustenance. I've always built stuff. Like I've always built inventions from when I was a little kid. And I've always loved to build things. Like even when I built the first one though, it was a hacked together thing of a bunch of other parts. So like I took a Wi-Fi camera, I took a actuator button that was, you know, so I didn't like from scratch, like, you know, program chips. But yeah, no, I've always been someone, it's still to this day. I mean, I, uh, like we're doing a, a kind of a renovation on a house and I, I had this idea. I was, I was wondering, you know, the heaters for, for um, tables outside. Like the reason you never use your table outside in California is yeah. it, it, it's nice during the day, but at night it actually gets pretty chilly. Yeah. And then the heaters are like kind of ugly and you have to like, they have like these gas, whatever. So I'm building a table that the heater actually rises up from the center of it, like with a button so that like during the day it doesn't look like crap, but at night you can just like hit a button and it comes up and like heat turns on. What? It, it emerges from the table? Yeah. yeah it emerges from the table. Whoa. Kind of like a beat me up Scotty yeah, type yeah. situation. So like, that's like, so that's the kind of stuff that like, you know, my wife is just like, you need to focus on ring. You do not need to build this table. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, no. I like, this is awesome. Like I'm building this table. This is like the greatest thing ever. So right. like, that's what Sunday nights are for. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I just, I've always liked to just, I see problems like that and I can't stop thinking about them until I've solved them. How did Richard Branson get involved? Was he just part of a, an investment round, or like just luck? I mean, uh, we had a we had a, a customer that was on his island that answered the door from his island on his, oh Necker Island. Yeah, he was on Necker Island. The, our, our customer, Ring's customer, answers the door, tells the person where to put the package. Dinner that night, they're talking, and Richard says, "You know, what cool things are you seeing?" He's like, "Cool things." He's like, "Look at this!" Like from your island, I answered the door at my house in San Francisco and told him where to put the package. And Richard's like. That's amazing. I'd love to give that to my friends for the holidays. So when you're like, when you're worth $9 billion, holiday gifts are very stressful. Yeah. And so all of a sudden I get an email from this customer and was saying, Richard copied, wants to give uh, rings to his friends for the holidays. And as I told you, my email's on every box. 
I just thought it was like another one of these. Oh, great. Like Richard in Oklahoma wants to buy like yeah. seven rings. You're like, I wish I had unsubscribe on this right yeah, now. Yeah like, yeah, like kind of. And then you realize you're like, okay, that looks like Richard Branson. Richard, I am happy to help you with your you know, <laughs> holiday gifts. I will personally fly it down to you, you know, like, and then we started talking and I told him about reducing crime in neighborhoods. I told him about kind of what's happening. I sent him this link of this burglary that we had just stopped. And I'm like, just check this out. This is what you'll be doing for your friends for giving this to them for the holidays. And then Richard said, can I invest? And I said, yes. How much did you put in? The whole round was 28 million and he was a big part of it. So is he on the board or do you? Have, uh, he no. has a board observer seat that his, uh, like he has like a, a investment person. Does somebody like Richard Branson, who obviously is worth lots of money and lives on an island island yeah does he get involved with a company like this or is he is he kind of you know lobbying in ideas from afar or so i mean maybe he cares if we're growing or not growing but he's really not in the day-to-day of it he he loves to talk about the really really long moonshotty stuff so i talked to him about that like richard in 10 years we want to do this and he like loves that stuff or he'll ask for like kind of how can i help you like today ADT is suing me right now, the largest security company in the world, which is ADT oh, is suing me. Why? Because uh, I'm coming out with an alarm system that's so good that they actually scared them so much they su- they're suing me. Explain. It's like when you when you do something like when you're in an industry and you're disrupting it because you're just better than everyone. Usually, the old legacy like lethargic. Yeah, we grew up just, with an ADT on our. Yeah, so that company, as they're house. farming and you know taking their customers' money by tough contracts decided to sue me because obviously I'm doing too much goodness for customers. And so they need to stop that. How much are they suing you for? They're suing me more to like stop me. So like injunctions and all sorts of stuff like that, but I sued him back. So we'll be good. But like, that's something like I asked Richard about because he had British Airways. Did he have any advice on how to, other than sue them back? First of all, he's like, it's like a compliment, you know, it's like, what a great thing to have like the big guy sue you. He actually then wrote a blog post about it, um, which is kind of cool about uh, basically like, Goliath will always sue David, but you need the Davids to win in order to deliver like the consumer services that we want today. And if you let Goliath always win, like we'll just have shit service. So what's the future gazing? What's the kind of the grand plan? So I would say our KPI, like our, our, you know, our key performance indicator, you know, like which most people have is revenue and number of customers and everything else is around crime. You know, how much crime can we reduce in the next five or 10 years? Like how can we change how neighborhoods work and people live in them? That's our biggest goal. And then how do we get there is by getting more data points, which for us is more cameras, getting things like the alarm system in there, which gives us, again, more data points, working with our neighbors and just sort of trying to make neighborhoods better places to live for for everyone. And I think if we do that, hopefully that makes kids have better lives growing up. And if they have better lives growing up, then obviously they'll become sort of more productive. And so like hopefully it kind of like some of these cycles that are in, especially in certain neighborhoods, we can help break that by making just the underlying way. Well, if there's a high crime area, no one's spending $200 for, uh, for one of these. They, I mean, you don't have $200. You're so gonna, so you're there, buy groceries. there is some of that. It's actually surprising though. Like even in, even in high crime areas and sort of lower income areas, you'd be surprised at how much people spend on their houses for things. But we also give a lot away. So we have a campaign with Sha- Shaquille O'Neal. So we have a thing called Ring Neighborhoods where we're, we're giving away over a million dollars worth of equipment this year. Uh, we've done it for the last couple of years. We've done um, Detroit. We did a bunch of stuff. We give over a million dollars of rings to schools every year to be auctioned off to bring sort of money back to schools because we think making neighborhoods safer is literally not it's, – it's for us, it's, a, it's an approach to what we do. It's not just the product we sell. And again, we're not going to change the world just by ourselves, but if we can help – 
in our little way and other people do, I think that will lead to something. And is the, the alarm, is that going to have like a camera out in front of the house? I mean, are we talking about a future where everybody has cameras pointed everywhere? Well, I think, you know, I mean, our doorbell camera right now is it kind of points out and it's getting a lot of data there. It'll work with our stuff. So it's not about redesigning our product. It's about sort of adding door and window sensors and things like that to a current ring environment that's already there. So, and then using all that data to, again, make the make our neighbor's house better and safer, but then also obviously making the neighborhood better and safer. I also read that you've actually gone out to customers' houses. Tons. I mean, part of like being your emails in the box is like you're there to like help people. If I'm in range of that person when they email me, like I will go to their house. I'll call them. I'll go to their house. Like I will fix it. You'll go there and just like, well, it's a screwdriver. Most of it's like really easy stuff. Like it's something that's like just wrong. Like they have their, I had one where they were having problems with the ring and they're like, you know, I just I can't figure it out. And then, and I went there and I'm like, yeah, the internet's good. And I'm like trying to figure it out. So I look, I'm like, where's your Wi-Fi router? And they go, it's underneath the sink. They open up the thing. And there's this like stainless steel, like 50 pound box that they had stored in front of the Wi-Fi router underneath the sink. And I'm like, can I just do one thing real quick? Can I just take this? So I took it out, put it in the other closet door. And I said, we just closed up everything. Can, I say, can we just test it again? Works flawlessly. I'm like, yes, if you block the Wi-Fi signal, it will not work. A lot of times it's like not us, but like if the experience is bad, it is us. You know, when you have millions of units in the field, you get a lot of variation of things. And usually you have funny things like that where it's just, you know, you're like, oh my, right. oh man, like this is why it's so hard to do business. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is hard. It sounds really exhausting. One way to look at it is exhausting. The other way is like really energetic and that you never know what tomorrow is going to be. And I'd, I'd much rather have that than every day be the same. Are you profitable? I mean, we absolutely could be profitable. We are not at all profitable because I invest a ton of money in research and development and future stuff. The Amazon approach. Yes. That we are very Jeff Bezos-esque, I think, in terms of how we look at business, which is have very good core business. So each business you do is actually very healthy. But then overall, you're just dumping tons of investment into things for the future. What was your worst day? My worst day was two days. So it was the it was Christmas Eve Eve of 2012. We just started shipping doorbots. The first batch that came in, we tested. Everything was fine. We shipped it out. We made one minor change to the code to make the camera a little bit better, you know, like just like any company would do. We tested it. We sent it off to the factory. They put it on the chips. All those came in. We were super busy, so we just shipped them right out. And then all of a sudden, we realized that the change on the code had not been tested correctly. Like it had been, there'd been a mistake in how we tested it at the time, and that we were actually wrong. We had never really loaded that change onto the camera, and therefore, what we had loaded on the camera was just a change that had never. We didn't even understand what we had done, and they weren't working. None of them were working in the field. So all of so a sudden, they were all so we had 10, useless. Ten thousand cameras now in the field that we had shipped. There was no video showing up on the phone. And that was your first one? This is our first one. So we had, uh, so we would have had to have replaced 10,000 doorbells. That's your toast at that point. Done. Completely done. I don't care how you do the math. Like there was no way of doing it. Christmas Eve all day, like we were literally meeting and trying to like come up with something. We just couldn't come up with anything. And then I all of a sudden was like, you know what? We used to use this other video player in the cloud that seemed to be able to deal with like anything. It was actually the, the QuickTime. It was like from the, it was like the Apple Enterprise. They used to have an enterprise video player. I don't even know if they still have it. I right. bet you they don't. And so I said to my tech guy, I said, what happens if we run this thing through the QuickTime player? Will it be able to like kind of figure it out and then kind of re-spit it out? 
So I, I sent him like a text, like I wake up Christmas morning, like 6 a.m. because I couldn't sleep anyway. Literally with like a text from him, like it works. There'll never be another Christmas that good. <laughs> there'll never be a Christmas Eve that bad and there'll never be a Christmas that good. And I mean, it was really the difference probably was, probably was personal bankruptcy would have been, is, is the difference of that. You were that strict. Because I mean, we would have like, we would have tanked the whole thing. I had too much money into the company at the time. If it wasn't personal bankruptcy, it would have been it would have been a, a massive impact on my financials as a as a family and and meaningful like meaningful impact. Well, you've been very generous with your time. Oh, no, thank you. It's fun. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I will let you get back. I'm sure you have some <laughs> some emails to answer. <laughs> I'm sure I do. <laughs> and that's it for another edition of Danny in the Valley. I'd like to thank Jamie for sharing his story as it is so far. Uh, who knows, maybe he'll also be able to get that weird Lego garden thing he was working on off the ground. Although I think I'd buy a ring before I bought one of those. The usual plea before I leave you, please go to Apple Podcasts, give a review and rating. It helps immensely. And it only takes a minute, literally. So please go do that. And in the meantime, you can find me every Sunday in the Sunday Times, also on Twitter, at Danny Fortson, at D-A-N-N-Y-F-O-R-T-S-O-N. Until next week, thanks, bye-bye. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.